Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Helen, have you ever committed to a project only to realize that you bit off way more than you could chew? I think this is a bit of a jab from you. I, I know exactly what you're referring to. I wouldn't call it a jab because it's just as much my fault. <laughs> Kellen and I committed to helping his in-laws re-roof their house. And we were like, oh, this will be like a three or four day project. We'll take a couple days off of work. And it has turned out to be... So much more than that. And you and I have both re-roofed houses before, but this one just ended up being two to three times as much as we expected. Yeah, the problem hasn't been laying shingles or putting the roof on. It was removing the multiple layers of shingles that were there before. And it has been such a mess. And whoever put the first layer down years and years ago did some crazy things. They used a lot of tar and stacked several layers in certain areas. And so it has just been a very tedious mess. And if you've ever de-shingled a house and you're using manual tools to do it, you know the toll that that can take on your hands. We just did like some pretty basic calculations based on how many nails they sent us to put the new layer on. Well, there was twice that many nails to take off from the old layers because there was two layers and they sent us 15,000 nails. So we're thinking <laughs> we removed basically by hand 30,000 nails off of this roof. It has just definitely been a pretty wild project. So all that's to say, if Kellen and I sound tired or frustrated, it's likely because we've been doing nothing but our day jobs and manual labor on roofs for the last week and a half. Yeah, and we're not done yet. 
In fact, after recording this episode, we're going to go spend hours working on that roof. And then maybe we'll be able to spend a little bit of time with our families again tonight. But we, we are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So there is that. So this week is part two of reviewing Ray Dalio's book, A Changing World Order. Last week was part one. And just as a little bit of a sort of reminder, if you don't know who Ray Dalio is, he is a multi-billionaire hedge fund manager who has taken over the years a very methodical approach to learning about history and, and the cycles of empires and money so that he can make the best financial decisions for his hedge fund. To reiterate, you know, we don't stand by Ray Dalio as an outstanding person. We don't know enough about Ray Dalio to say what his motives and, and, and intentions are behind his book. But his book basically lays out the long-term and short-term cycles of money and debt are and how empires change over time. One thing that Kellen and I wanted to point out is that we received a couple of emails with some interesting insights into perhaps the perspective that Ray Dalio comes from and how that differs from our typical view of collapse. One listener mentions that, for example, all of the historical empires that Ray Dalio talks about in his book changed hands in a time when we hadn't reached sort of our limits to growth. There wasn't so much expansion that we had already overshot or that we had filled every land on earth. There was still room for expansion, which led to new growth for the new empires that sort of took their place. And how now, where we have reached our limits to growth, there's not a lot of room for new empires to be able to expand and grow. So that is one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing was that Dalio isn't looking at a lot of the externalities like climate change or limits to growth in general, and that those externalities place a lot of strain on the ability for a new empire to grow in the place of the old empire. Their point being that the U.S. may be the last great empire, or if, like Dalio suggests, that China will take over, it would be very short-lived. It's not like we're looking at another several hundred years of a new empire. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, I think those are some really good considerations. I'm so grateful that we've received those emails from people listening to the podcast. You know, Corey, you and I have made the comment several times that we are not experts I'm much less a collapse expert than you. Everything that I've learned about it has been through the course of these conversations on this podcast and also through research for the podcast. But we have interviewed like John Michael Greer, Joseph Tainter, Tom Murphy, you know, a number of notable voices in the collapse community. And we've also shared what we've seen on some documentaries and what we've discovered from reading certain books. And I think from our perspective, nobody really paints the full picture or tells the full story. Everyone owns a piece of it and has their expertise, and we're trying to pull all of that together. And so last episode and this episode, here we are saying, here's Ray Dalio, who has spent a considerable amount of time and research and money trying to figure out why empires fall and what those cycles look like. And he has presented his findings and I don't think we are here saying everything that Ray Dalio says is accurate. We're just trying to present here's his perspective on it. And as we get perspectives from person A, B, C, D, all the way through Z, we can kind of triangulate and figure out what is realistic, what we can reasonably expect to happen. Yeah, what I find really interesting about Ray Dalio's argument is that it's not so much about collapse at all, right? It's about cycles that happen throughout all of world history. So even if collapse wasn't 
basically guaranteed, right? Like we've talked about throughout the entire podcast, there are still major implications and ramifications just from normal cycles to both the U.S. and the world with a changing world order. So you take these big cycles and then you add in all the externalities and all the things we've talked about in regards to collapse. And I think it just helps reinforce that no matter what, big changes are coming. And when you take Ray Dalio's perspective and you add in the perspective of collapse, it really just helps solidify the ideas we've been talking about. Awesome. Well, what I think is going to be fun about today's conversation is that Ray Dalio does make some specific predictions. And most people, including you and I, Corey, were pretty hesitant to make any specific predictions. Sometimes it's even frustrating. We've talked about the scientific reticence that occurs when we wish people would be a little more bold about what they expect to happen. And so I feel like this is really what we want to hear, right? We, we want to hear from Ray Dalio, you know, after all of your research, all the facts and figures and everything you've plugged into to computer models, what is it that you really think is going to happen? And in fact, his book is divided into a few different sections. Section number three, the final section of the book, before it gets to his lengthy appendix, is about the future. So what I've tried to do is pull out all the little bits and pieces that are him making a prediction. And I'm going to be curious to hear, Corey, as we go through it, if you agree or disagree. Great. Let's do it. Okay, awesome. So as a reminder, his approach is all based on three things. He talks about evolution, and I'm not talking about like the evolution of species. For him, it's just the idea that there are changes over time generally towards improvement such as increasing productivity. So evolution, cycles, he talks a lot about cycles, you know, those rhythmic ups and downs in the economy, the things that cause the dips and spikes along the way. And he also talks a lot about indicators. If you remember, he's always looking at if X happens, then make Y bet. So he's always looking for what are the cause and effect relationships? What are the indicators that a certain something is about to take place? So with that in mind, he spends a little bit of time talking about inventiveness. And I find this fascinating because we've done a whole sub-series on technology and whether technology can save us or not. And there are continual debates. You know, David Skirbina, who we interviewed, and he had some pretty controversial things to say. We didn't agree with everything he said, but he's very anti-technology. And he did make some interesting points, but people in the collapse community get so frustrated about the hopium that's out there that people place in technology that, yeah, we're just going to invent solutions that are going to fix all these problems. So in this part of the book, Ray Dalio, he shows a number of charts. He shows our GDP or real GDP, which is GDP that's been adjusted for inflation. He shows global life expectancy over time. He shows global population. And each of these items, you can see this hockey stick curve that we get somewhere around the year 1900, and you see this big spike in all of these areas. And when he's talking about causes, those indicators, if we were looking at what was happening back at that time, he says, we could have predicted that advances would occur that would enable significantly larger populations to live significantly longer while enjoying significantly higher standards of living because the evolution that has already occurred and that we have every reason to expect to continue to occur from humanity's inventiveness. 
So he starts talking about just how innovative humanity is and how he expects things to continue to get better overall. But he says there's going to be this struggle, this battle, because we have all these challenges that are facing us. So in his words, humanity's inventiveness will probably lead to great advances, while the debt-slash-economic cycle, the internal order cycle, the external order cycle, and worsening acts of nature will almost certainly pose problems. In other words, there will be a battle between humanity's inventiveness and these other challenges. And that's true. That's exactly what we've been saying all along. We've got all these big problems that are facing us. And the question is, can we be innovative and inventive enough to offset those problems, to survive it? And I thought this statement was one of the most interesting statements in the book. He says, so my view is that inventiveness and increases in living standards will probably get a lot better a lot faster if humanity doesn't kill itself first. It sounds about right. And I think, I think he's, I mean, it's a simple statement to make. If, you know, if we stick around for a long time, then we'll be able to do some great things technologically, but we have to not kill ourselves first. And the entire premise of our podcast is that we are going to kill ourselves first, or that at least we're going to, through collapse, sort of reverse the direction that we're headed technologically. Even if we don't completely go extinct as a species, we're still limiting our own ability to grow technologically at all at some point. You know, and it's interesting from our conversation with David Skirbina, he makes the claim that all of our problems stem from technological advancements. And so Ray Dalio here is saying our inventiveness, our, our technological advancements are the potential solution to all of our problems. But not everyone would agree with that. Yeah, I think Skirbina makes the point there that technology is what has led to our growth. It's what's led to our massive resource usage. It's what's led to the energy cliff. And so while I don't necessarily agree with Skirbina that there's any path towards getting rid of technology in an ethical way or a moral way, I do disagree with Dalio that technology is going to fix things. I think technology can be a great band-aid for a lot of the issues that we're facing, I think we are going to make these big technological strides. You know, I think renewable energies are going to get better. I think energy storage is going to get better. There's going to be things that are better and that might seem like fixes. But as we've covered extensively th through our technology episodes, there's just simply no way that technology is going to fix things and allow the human experience at our current societal levels to continue for, for centuries into the future. So one of the things that Ray Dalio claims is that China is going to overtake America as the leading global empire. And he talks about that in a whole lot of different areas. When it comes to innovation, inventiveness, he's got a whole variety of metrics that he's pulled together. He looks at innovation per capita. He looks at researchers and how much R&D spending is taking place in a nation, how many patents and Nobel Prizes, how much venture capital funding. All these things are pulled together to determine what he calls a, a country's inventiveness. And his claim is that the U.S. is in the top spot, but that it's kind of plateaued, that it's just remaining steady, while China is in second place and is rising. So is it a question of momentum then? Because even if China's in a distant second in these different areas, if the U.S. is completely plateaued and the momentum is shifted in China's direction, it's just a matter of time before they overtake, right? 
Yeah, that's exactly what he seems to be indicating. That at least in this area, the U.S. isn't necessarily declining. But the fact that China is closing that gap, in addition to the other ways in which he says China is beating the U.S., it's setting them up to take the place of the U.S. as the leading global empire. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the dollar, because Ray Dalio talks a lot in his book about the dollar. Here's a statement that I pulled from the book. He says, To be clear, because the reserve currency countries that are running big deficits have their deficits and debts denominated in their own currencies, their ability to print the money to service the debts transfers the risks from them as debtors to those who are holding the debt as creditors. So, the big risk is not that those big debtors will default. It is that creditors will hold assets that will be devalued. Or in other words, that the returns from holding debt assets will be less than the inflation rate. What does that mean for the dollar and the other minor reserve currencies? He says most probably they will decline analogously to past reserve currency declines slowly for a long time and then very quickly. Which is interesting because that's a term used to describe collapse a lot. It happens very slowly and then all at once. Yeah, and he says that's how it's happened with past reserve currencies. And so he just expects the pattern to continue. He can kind of see the writing on the wall for the dollar. He says the fall happens fast because the currency's rate of decline outpaces the interest rate paid to the holders of the debt. The net losses lead to selling, which causes more losses. So the spiral becomes self-reinforcing. And this ties back to what we talked about in the last episode with just the insane amount of debt that the U.S. as a nation is holding and the way that the U.S. has continued to print money and what that's doing to devalue the dollar. I'm no economist, and it seems that economists can't even agree anyways, but I, I don't know whether I expect the U.S. to lose its status as having the dollar be the reserve currency. But Ray Dalio's prediction is that that's where we're headed. So I also am no economist. And, you know, we hear talk pretty often about the dollar ceasing to be the world reserve currency. But at least from Dalio's perspective, what does that mean? What are the implications of the U.S. losing reserve currency status? Yeah, in a nutshell, he basically says that it means a lot of trouble for the U.S. You know, you may remember from our last conversation about Ray Dalio's book, he describes it as the exorbitant privilege that a nation like the U.S. has. Because the dollar is the reserve currency, they're able to get debt at a cheaper rate. They're able to get loans at a much better rate than other countries. And like he's saying here, they can print money which devalues the dollar to, to help cover those debts. But his claim is that the U.S. has overextended itself to the point that it's kind of propped up by this debt far beyond its natural fundamental limits. And so if suddenly the dollar lost its status as the world's reserve currency, it would cause a major crash for the U.S. Sounds like a party. Yeah, that's a word for it. Okay, the next area he talks about is acts of nature. And I was wrong. You know, last episode I said that he doesn't ever talk about climate change. He doesn't ever bring that into the conversation. He does for like one page. He just slightly mentions it. So he shows a chart of natural disasters. And he says, this chart captures extreme environmental events. The headline is that from 1970 to 2020, 
they increased from fewer than 50 per year to nearly 200 per year and are trending higher. And then he just says, it's pretty clear to me that humanity and natural evolution together are doing great damage to the environment that will be very costly in both money and quality of life. So he doesn't make any big, bold predictions there with acts of nature other than to say, yeah, they're getting worse and we can expect that they will continue to get worse. Which is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> you know, you think about just right now and all of the talk that there is around food insecurity, all these issues with agriculture, some due to supply chain issues, some due to the war in Ukraine, and some due to increased drought and heat waves or torrential rains causing problems. So there's all these weather events that are causing issues with our food supply, and we're barely starting to, to heat up, right? We've got so much heating that's coming in the future to think of just the next 20 to 30 years and, and the issues that we're going to have in regards to our food supply, supply chains is, uh, is pretty wild to consider. Yeah, exactly. So where he doesn't talk a whole lot about climate change, he briefly mentions acts of nature as a problem. Where he does talk quite a bit is conflict. If you'll remember, his whole book is basically about power, the economy, and conflict. So he looks at what he calls the internal strife index and something else called the political conflict index. He says the risks are high, but not unprecedentedly so. But he does spend a little bit of time sharing some data. He says, for example, in a 2019 Pew survey, 55% of Republicans and 47% of Democrats viewed the other as more immoral than other Americans. And 61% of Republicans and 54% of Democrats said that those of the other party don't share their values. When asked whether they had warm or cold feelings to those of the other party, 79% of Democrats and 83% of Republicans said that they had cold or very cold feelings for members of the other party. And he, he lists a handful of other stats. One of them, he says, one recent survey showed that 15% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats thought that the country would be better off if large numbers of the other side just died. <laughs> wow. So he's looking at all of this research. He's seeing the way internal conflict is really heating up. And this is where he makes a pretty specific claim. He says, while I think the odds of the U.S. devolving into a stage six civil war type dynamic within the next 10 years are only around 30%, that is a dangerously high risk that must be protected against and watched closely via my coincident and leading indicators. So there you have it. He thinks within the next 10 years, there's a 30% chance that the U.S. devolves into civil war or a civil war type dynamic. Do you know what he's referring to when he says a level six? Is that like all out extreme civil war? Or, you know, you think of things like the troubles in Ireland and some of these different levels, I guess, different degrees of conflict in civil war. Do you know what? level of conflict he's stating would happen in that 30% chance? Yeah, so he doesn't dive super deep other than he outlines these six stages. And I'll just review them really quickly. So stage one, when the new order begins, new leadership consolidates power. Stage two, resource allocation systems, government bureaucracies are built and refined. Stage three, there's peace and prosperity. Stage four, there are great excesses in spending and debt and the widening of wealth and political gaps. 
Stage five, which is where he claims we're at, he says when there are very bad financial conditions and intense conflict. Stage six, when there are civil wars or revolutions, which leads back to stage one, when there's, again, a new order that begins, new leadership consolidates power. So it's the final stage of the cycle, according to him, which makes me think it's got to be some pretty intense conflict. It's interesting to hear his his percentage estimate there, 30% over the next 10 years. I'd be curious to hear what he believes, you know, the next 20 or 30 years, because all of that is still just as relevant, right? He might say 30% over the next 10 years, but would, would it be 50% in 20 years or 70%? Or does he feel pretty confident that in the next 20 or 30 years, this has to happen? Does he expound on that at all in the book or does he just go 10 years out? You know, I tried to, it's a long book. I tried to read through and highlight everything that stood out to me. And all I saw was his specific predictions about 10 years. He does mention that at least on the internal strife index, the U.S. isn't as high as it was like in the 70s. On the political conflict index, he's saying we're as high as we've been since the 1920s. But yeah, he he limits it here to 10 years and he says 30% is the chance. He, He says that's a very big risk even though it's more likely that it won't happen than that it will in his mind. Yeah, I mean, 30%, that's no small thats no small risk. If you told me I had a 30% chance of dying and a 70% chance of getting a million dollars, I don't know if I'd take that bet. That's, a, that's pretty steep. Yeah, well said. And what's concerning is the way it stacks up against some of the other things he predicts. So he also looks at external conflict. That was just like internal civil war. But as he looks at what's happening, alliances between countries, the level of conflict at an international level, he ends up saying this. He says, on net, I would conclude that the probability of a big war in the next 10 years is 35%, give or take. And he then says, which is essentially a wild guess. In any case, it's a dangerously high risk. And, And I don't know if he's talking about like a world war, if that's the extent to which he's he's claiming we've got a 35% risk. But if we've got a 30% risk in his mind of civil war in the US, plus 35% risk of a big war internationally, and he's saying that's all within the next 10 years, uh, that's, that's a pretty bold claim. And I wonder if his feelings on that have changed since the war in Ukraine started and Putin, you know, raising the rhetoric increasing his threats. And then, of course, now, just recently with this news of Sweden and Finland requesting to join NATO, I wonder if that changes his perspective on it. Obviously, it's also recent, and so who knows how much he's able to plug that into his AI and all that. But the chances of World War, at least for me, over the last two months have definitely risen exponentially. Yeah, we're certainly seeing some really interesting events happen globally and and one thing that's fascinating, in a recent bonus episode that we provide to our subscribers on Patreon, we talked about an article that claims major banks are being told to prepare for like unprecedented levels of internal conflict as food prices soar and inflation increases and everyone gets desperate, budgets tighten up and people are struggling to survive. And we talked a little bit about how credible we think that is or or isn't. But there are claims that we're heading towards more and more conflict as these issues escalate. 
And that kind of leads me to the last prediction that I'm going to mention from Ray Dalio's book. And it's around economic downturn. And Corey, just this week, you and I have seen a whole lot being talked about. A lot of articles, even in mainstream media, kind of predicting recession or talking about how investor sentiment has slowed down. All the negative impacts from continuing supply chain issues and from insane amounts of inflation. So this one is is one that frankly terrifies me. Anyways, Ray Dalio, he says, My guess is the next downturn will come sooner than is typical. I'd estimate in about four years from the publication of this book, give or take a couple of years, which is about five and a half years from the bottom. He says, Based on my estimates, there's a significant chance the next downturn will come around the time of the next presidential election. Wow. So we're talking in the next year and a half or so. Yeah, that's his claim. And remember, his book is basically all about not only world powers, but the economy. So of all these different predictions that we've mentioned, this is the one that he seems to have the most confidence in. And he uses an analogy here. He says it's kind of like hurricane or typhoon season, where you don't know exactly when a hurricane or typhoon is going to hit or exactly how strong it's going to be, but you know that it's coming. And so he's he's saying all the signs are there. And yeah, four years from the publication of the book, which was just last year that it was published, he says, give or take a couple of years. And, and then he makes that claim around the time of the next presidential election. That's when we're going to see a downturn. You know, ever since 2020, I, I've always been nervous about this next presidential election. I feel like from an economic standpoint, yes, from a supply chain issue, yes, everything just seems to be getting worse and worse. From a civil unrest or societal order aspect as well, because the last election set up this ability or this precedent to immediately just be able to claim that elections are rigged. This has now happened on both sides of the political spectrum. So regardless of who wins, there will be claims of fraud and illegitimacy. And we've talked about the importance of the legitimacy and the sacred aura of the center and how much trust is required in in our governments for order to be maintained. And now you add in Ray Dalio's prediction of severe economic consequences around that time. And like you said, that we talked about in our bonus episode, all these new claims coming out from top economists talking about stagflation or recession and how it seems imminent in the coming months and years. And I really do think, yeah, the U.S. specifically but likely the world as a whole has a really tough couple of years, several years, decade ahead of us. People in the in the collapse community, I've seen talk a lot about how they feel like this is the last one, that we won't recover from this. It's all downhill from here. And I, I still take the approach that we have no idea and that it's a stair step, that there's big falls, slight recoveries, big falls, more slight recoveries. So I would never claim that we're going to go into an economic depression that we never come out of. You know, I wouldn't put it past the federal government to find some creative way to put a band-aid on it and make it look like it's okay for at least a little while. But I am to a point where I don't see any way that in the next four or five years, and possibly the next year or two, we don't have some serious economic problems headed our way. And we've said on the podcast before multiple times, the issues of collapse are going to present themselves as economic issues, whether it's energy or other resource depletion, whether it's conflict, whether, you know, whatever it is, supply chain issues, these things manifest themselves as economic problems through 
a worsening GDP, increasing inflation, lower employment, and ultimately it hurts our pocketbooks. It makes it harder for us to buy the things that we need to survive. If there's less food, if we're going through a food crisis, the cost of food goes up. And so it looks like an economic issue. The same thing happens. It reverberates throughout our entire systems. And so watching these economic problems come and feeling like this next one's going to be a big one sure makes it feel like a big step downwards in the sort of the collapse process. Yeah. And it brings me back to just thinking about my personal resilience. I mean, maybe Ray Dalio was wrong about everything. That'd be nice. And maybe all these other voices that we've mentioned, these other perspectives, maybe they're just alarmist. They're just fear-mongering. I don't think that's the case. I know, Corey, you and I, as we present all that we're finding here, we're not trying to, you know, scare anybody or, or trying to magnify or in, inflate any issues. We're trying to present a realistic picture of what's going on. And the more we step through it, the more I'm convinced that whether the problems over the next handful of years are only kind of big or whether they're really big, I'm going to be much better off if I at least take some steps to try to prepare myself. And so I think about this book. I don't know all of Ray Dalio's motives for doing this. He claims it's just to help people. And if I were him and I were looking at all of this data and I felt like the writing was on the wall that we were going to see a big change in the world order, I'd want to notify people too. Anyways, my, my hope is for anyone listening that you don't panic or overreact, but I would hope that collectively we can at least take steps to shore ourselves up a little bit. Yeah. You know, they say in times of emergency, panicking is the worst thing you can do. I think it's the easiest thing to do to just let our minds go into anxiety mode and freak out and, and try and rush, you know, and, and we make mistakes that way for sure. And a clear mind is super important when going into into emergency situations. So I agree. A, a calm, structured, organized, realistic approach to resiliency and, and preparing yourself, starting with the basics. You know, if you're going to do it, do it right sort of thing. I, I think that that is really important. Looking at the very beginning with the, the very rudimentary things that you need for your survival, making sure that you have continued access to them. And even if it's just small steps that you're taking those small steps can go a long way towards having peace of mind and also towards having an actual impact when that time of need approaches. Thanks again for listening this week. We, again, love to hear your feedback, so please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Reddit, user Corey John, K-O-R-Y-J-O-N, on Twitter at CollapsePod, or you can email us at breakingdowncollapse at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your friends and family who could benefit from hearing this information. Obviously, it's it's a steep topic and we've talked much in the past about thoughtfully sharing this with the right people at the right times. If you're interested in hearing from us more each week, we do have a weekly bonus episode that you can find on Patreon. There's a link to the Patreon account in the description of this episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.